The following lecture was delivered at the 9th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Tzvi Flom serves as Professor of Judaic Studies and is the spiritual leader of the Lander College for Women, a division of Turo College, and is the former rabbi of the landmark White Shul Congregation, Knesset Israel of Far Rockaway, New York. Rabbi Flom is nationally known for his expertise in medical halachic questions and is consulted in this regard by rabbis and ethicists from around the world. He will now present a lecture entitled, Pro-Life or Pro-Choice? The topic I'm going to be discussing this morning perhaps is the most debated topic we have not only in the United States, but perhaps in the world at large. And the basic question we're dealing with is, is that whether or not a child that is gestating in a mother's body is allowed to be aborted, is allowed to be destroyed, and the child not being given a chance to be born into this world. Now historically, before I get into the Jewish sources and the halakhic approach to this, what's interesting historically in America that up to the 1960s, there were pretty strict laws when it came to when and where, if at all, you were able to abortion. And really in the 1960s, two events took place that really stimulated a discussion that caused major reforms to take place. Number one, the women who were taking a pill called thalidomide uh, during, and this drug ultimately speaking caused tremendous birth defects to babies later on, babies were being born deformed. That took place in the early 1960s. In 1964, there was a German measles epidemic in the United States, which caused deformed babies and babies being born as stillborn babies. And because of these phenomenon taking place and because of the strict laws of abortion in the United States, a tremendous movement to liberalize abortion laws took place. By the time you got to the year 1979, about 15 states in the United States had liberalized the laws when it comes to the concept of abortion. Primarily, abortion was allowed for the, for the phenomenon of incest, of rape, child that might come out malformed from the body. These were the permissibilities promulgated at that time. But many people were not happy. They felt there was too much of a constriction still on abortion. And therefore, we finally came in the year 1973 to the United States Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, where there was a tremendous liberalization of abortion laws in the United States. On a constitutional level, there was liberalization of abortion on demand for any reason you so desired. There were statistics done since that specific uh, uh, mandate was made. And the fact of the matter is, most stats show you that most abortions are because of pregnancies that were not desired. That's the reason for most of the abortions today. The other problems are race, incest, or other types of conditions, medical conditions the mother might have, are on the minority. But primarily it's because of unwanted births. And when it comes to the battle cry, what's the reason that there is such a liberalization of abortion in America and the world at large 
is because of a concept I mentioned yesterday, and that is the secular concept in medical ethics of patient autonomy. A patient has a right to make the decision of what happens to their body. Since the baby inside the uterus is connected to the body, it's part of the body, and therefore a woman could decide for her choice what she wants to do, whether to keep the pregnancy or not. That's the major mantra, the pro-choice mantra you hear continuously in the news of pro-choice, pro-choice, my body, I can do what I want with it, based upon the concept of patient autonomy. What I'm going to do today is portray to you the laws of abortion, but interesting enough, as I'm soon going to show you, the laws of abortion, when God gave it to us, were not only addressed to the Jewish people, were addressed to the non-Jewish people as well. And to start off the discussion, and uh, as those who were here by my class yesterday, I'm going to give you a structured presentation. If you have any questions, please just jot it down, and I'll give you plenty of time to have an intellectual dialogue when it comes to answering your questions as we go through. But I have to give you a first full picture before you have enough information at your fingertips to really start asking me pointed questions. You'll ask me, where in the world, in the Bible, is the concept of abortion mentioned, the prohibition of abortion. So interesting enough, very similar to yesterday's presentation, we go back to the book of Genesis, the book of Bratius, the Pasha of Noah, and it seems, once again, when God, as I mentioned yesterday, when we came out of the table, Noah and his children came out to start the new world, God gave them an entire lecture, a divine lecture, on the severity of the crime of murder. And in that specific context, there's a passage I'll read in Hebrew and I immediately translate it to English, so listen very carefully. God says in this passage, Whoever spills the blood of a human being, their blood will be spilled, which means they'll be punished. Man was created in the image of God. So we have over here a statement that God is holding us accountable for the concept of destroying an image of God by destroying a human being. It says, spilling the blood of a man in man. According to the oral law, the Talmud in Masech the Sanhedrin, Adam Ba'adam is an allusion to the Easter of abortion. Because if you think about it, what you're doing is you're killing a man contained in the body of another man, in this case a woman. And when God says when you destroy a life contained in a mother's body, an Adam Ba'adam, that's considered the prohibition of Ritzich of murder, prohibited not only to the Jewish people, but prohibited even to the non-Jewish people, the B'nai Noach, which is what is the categorization of all non-Jews in the face of this earth, it's biblically prohibited according to Torah law. Something that the Christian church takes note of, and uh, even the Muslim religion quite obviously following whatever Jews do, they do when it comes to Paskin and Halachos. In the Protestant world, for some reason, according to many Protestants, they forgot about this Pasuk or interpreted it differently, but the fact is, in the Christian world, they take this very seriously, that there's a prohibition of abortion as biblical, according to them. But this is the source. And what's fascinating, even though it's being addressed to the B'nai Noach, the non-Jewish people, our great sages have a principle, a principle articulated in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, that it's impossible for the B'nai Noach to be prohibited in something the Jewish people are not prohibited in. And once the passage in the Torah prohibits abortion for non-Jews, it is understood 
that this applies to Jews as well. So from here we have a statement, at least according to the way most of our rabbinic decisors interpret it, that there's the biblical prohibition when it comes to performing an abortion on a baby itself. Now, Jew and non-Jew alike. The question, however, is that there is a difference in halacha when it comes to what is the severity of the crime, what is the punishment of the crime. When it comes to Noahide law, the Noah law, there's a principle we have also, the Gemara Sanhedrin articulates it. Any one of the violations of the mitzvahs of the Bnei Noah, technically, if they violate this, knowing what they're doing, they are halakhally violating a prohibition in and they're really, they're subject to capital punishment, Mises Bezden. That's theoretically what the punishment is. So for a non-Jew, there's no question that theoretically in Jewish law, based upon what non-Jewish law should be, a person who committed abortion would be hive, technically speaking, the, uh, the punishment of Mises Bezdin. When it comes to Jews, however, there are sources we have in other Gemaras, particularly the Gemara Mesech Nida, that tells us that the only time a Jew could be adjudicated for murder is if you kill a baby one day old, from one day old on, you kill that person, you're high, Mrs. Bezdin, you're for capital punishment. The inference which our sages have is anything that's not one day old, which means it hasn't been born yet, we can't be punished with Mrs. Bezdin, with capital punishment in the Jewish court, but many posts can say, well, you can't be punished down here. But there's a concept of capital punishment called Misa B'day Shemaim, where God in his heavenly tribunal punishes you with the divine punishment for having killed. So the only question is whether human beings do it down below or God does it above. But there, that's a technical difference. We'll discuss it later on. That's a technical difference, that, that difference between us and the non-Jewish world, that there might be a punishment of divine punishment for doing such. But for non-Jews, it's capital punishment down here. For Jews, it's capital punishment up in heaven. It's called Misa B'day Shemayim. Now, that is a very simple view of looking at abortion on a, on a first, 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 first view level. The problem is, and this is a major problem, which you'll see opens up a major, major Pandora's box, is that in the actual biblical text, when it comes to Jewish law that's mentioned in the Bible, there's no mention of criminal abortion explicitly in the text of the Torah. The only type of abortion or miscarriage we have is a woman walking in the street, somebody physically attacking her, she's pregnant, because of that attack, she un unfortunately undergoes a miscarriage, spontaneous miscarriage or abortion. And the question is, what's the punishment to the person who caused that woman, that physical type of harm, causing her to lose that baby in the pregnancy? What is the punishment that has to be put upon that person? And what the Bible says, very interestingly, is that if the woman survives, she's not killed, she's able to survive this abortion, the payment is, besides paying her for hurting her body, well, when you hurt somebody, tort laws, you have to pay for their doctor bills and for their shame and for the loss of work. Besides those penalties paid for hurting her and harming her, there is what's called the money value of the valadot of the babies that must be paid to the husbands, called the mevaladot in Hebrew. And this is a divine decree, how they, how they figure this out is, how much should be, should be worth in the marketplace being sold without babies, how much should be sold with babies, that extra additional sum is what you have to pay according to the divine law to the husband. But there's no mention of any type of punishment 
of Misa B'day Shemayim, heavenly punishment, or human punishment for having caused, even purposely, the woman to lose her child. So the obvious question is why? Especially if you might hold, like those specific opinions, that there is a Misa B'day Shemayim phenomenon for, in fact, causing an abortion to take place purposely, and even though this was not done as a premeditated, but it happened nevertheless, the person wanted to hit this woman and he hit this woman, the fact of the matter is, is that there's no Misa B'day Shemayim mentioned over here. There's no Misa B'day Adam. Paid the Mevaladas. Why is that the case? So there's a major debate. And with this debate, as you're going to see very shortly, I'm going to take off and develop in front of you two different systems in the world of Halacha that are Gadoli HaPoskim, going back from time of antiquity, from the time of the Rishon up into the current era, two different approaches to answer this question, and based upon their approaches of answering this question, we'll come to an understanding of what is the severity of the prohibition when it comes to abortion. I presented you before the most serious one that it's considered murder, B'day Shemayim, but I'm going to show you very shortly there are other opinions. Listen very carefully. Rashi mentions that over here, even though the baby was killed, you only paid the Mevaladas. And there's a debate amongst those who explain Rashi why Rashi held that way. The famous, famous uh, Mizrahi, who's one of the commentaries on Rashi, claims that technically speaking, perhaps there should have been a concept of Misa B'day for killing the baby. But the only problem is, is in order to give somebody even Misa B'day Shemayim, let alone Misa going to human courts, the viability of the baby has to be guaranteed. A baby in utero, its viability is never guaranteed until it's born. And even in Jewish law, even if it's born, in certain laws you wait for 30 days to make sure the child has viability. But surely in the utero, so many things can happen before the pregnancy is, is completed, the viability is a problem. If there's viability questions, in order to have anybody chayiv any misa, whether misa b'day shemayim or misa according to heavenly law, you have to give them a forewarning. If you do X and Y and Z, you're going to be chayiv this punishment. The problem is since we don't know the child has viability, the warning, the hasra is called the hasra sabik, it's a hasra of doubt. Based upon technical Jewish law, if you give a hasra forewarning based upon doubt, you can't enforce that hasra. So therefore ends up, according to the Mizrahi, technically perhaps, the person should be chayv misa b'day shemayim, but since you can't give a proper forewarning because of the technicality of the potential non-viability of the child, we exempt you from misa b'day shemayim, and that's why the, the minimal you pay is basically a monetary fine. The reason I'm saying this is because if, in fact, there was a definite punishment of misa b'day shemayim for having killed this child, we have another halacha from the Gemara Babakamba that a person, when they perform an activity of an Avera, where there's a monetary fine and a divine punishment, death fine, simultaneously, there's a concept of Kamalim Rabbinay, you can't give a person two punishments, you give them the more severe punishment. A punishment for death would override and trump the monetary benefit award and therefore knock it out of existence. Since we don't have a definite death warrant against the person who caused this crime, it's a question of doubt. The monetary fine comes forth, and that's why the payment takes place. So according, therefore, to the Mizrahi's approach, it seems that the baby is called a partial nefesh. This is a term you're going to learn over the next couple of minutes. A partial soul, 
not a full, a baby is only a full nephew when it's born into this world, and its viability is, is seen. The baby inside is a suffix nephesh, it's like a quasi-live or live human being. And for that reason, there's a monetary payment. And for that reason, there's a severity of the crime, because it could be Misa B'day Shemayim, but we can't adjudicate it here because of our doubts. That's the way that basically the Mizrahi learned Rashi. The Maralmi Prague has a different shot entirely. He says the reason that technically speaking Rashi held that you can't punish this person with Misa B'day Shemayim is because the baby does not become a nefesh until the baby's born. The baby in utero is not considered a nefesh in Jewish law yet. Therefore, you're not considered committing an act of death. This is totally different than my initial approach, which I stole after class. You're destroying some material of the body, but you're not causing a death of a nefesh of a human being. And therefore, for that reason, of course, you're only chayiv money, you're not chayiv a misa b'day shemayim. But when you think about this for a couple of minutes, this is a major ramification. You now have a major dispute in interpreting a biblical law of two commentaries on Rashi, whether the value of the concept of causing a spontaneous abortion, is this a form of an unpunishable death? Is a ritzicha murder committed, but can't be punished down here? Or is it a non-ritzicha crime? It's prohibited, but for other divine reasons, I'll explain to you very shortly. That's a major difference, a tremendous difference. Now what's interesting in the world of halacha is this became a major machlokas rishonim and poskim. And I'm going to now divide it up for you to see the differences and I will then, after I do that, show you the differences in halacha predicated upon this. If you say that this is the position that I'm presenting now, so it means that there are some who claim that abortion is looked upon as a quasi type of murder, Others say it's not a murder. If it's not a murder, so what's the crime? What is the terrible thing I'm doing by causing a termination of the pregnancy? So concerning this, there was a controversy amongst two gedolei achronim, one whose name is the Trani Mishbacha, the Maharit, the other one is the Chavis Rav Brachrach, in which they have the following two opinions. Rav Trani says the baby is connected to the organ system of the mother's body. It's receiving nutrition. The mother's body is maintaining it. It's no different than any other organ system being maintained in the mother's body. Therefore, if you terminate the pregnancy, you're cutting away a kidney. You're cutting away some other body organ. So you're violating what's called wounding, chabala. It's one of the prohibitions in the Torah. You can't chove, you can't destroy your body or anybody else's body. It's an isalav. It's, it's punishable by monetary punishments, but it is surely not murder. Chabala. It's based upon Ubi Yerach Imo, the baby is considered an appendage, organ system of the mother's body. So that's why it's biblically prohibited, and you can't do it unless there are mitigating circumstances. The author of the Chavis of Bachrech, says an alternate pshat. He says it's not because of wounding necessarily, but because since the baby was created by the semen and the egg of the father and mother, which are called the zera, the fertile, fertile, fertile uh, contributions of the parents in the creation of the child. When you therefore destroy the child, you're destroying the zera, the, the, the actual seed, the genetic material for which the child was created. And in Jewish law, there's a prohibition to destroy the human seed in general. Killing a baby is destroying the seed and what the seed wanted to accomplish. So that's a separate biblical, it's called hashchas zera, and that's the opinion of Abachrach. None of them are murder, but either chabala, you're wounding, or you're causing destruction of seed, but it's not murder. 
So that's the way they explain uh, the other camp. It seems that Rashi in the Gemara shows you which side he's on. And there's no question he should be interpreted the way the Maral interpret him. The Rashi held that the baby inside is not considered nefesh. And therefore, that's why Rashi is always claimed to hold that if you destroy the baby, it's Chabala or destroying Zerah. The one who disagrees with Rashi on this is the Rambam Maimonides. Rambam says in his Halakha Compendium that when you basically have a baby in utero and you cause that baby's destruction, you're committing a crime akin to Ritzicha, murder, not murder punishable down here, but Misa B'day Shemayim. Now how do we know this? How do we know this? So what's interesting in Jewish literature, we have a source that the non-Jewish world could obviously didn't have access to in our oral law, and there's a Mishnah in Oalot which talks about therapeutic abortions. We have a divine oral law teaching us even as, a, as terrible as abortion might be, but that's criminal abortion. When it comes to therapeutic abortion, the mother's life is at stake, we have a divine source in oral law telling us that the biblical prohibition of abortion doesn't apply when there's a therapeutic benefit to the mother itself. Something the Christian church and nobody else has, we have it. Theoretically, I'll show you later on, they also have it, and we have a responsibility to tell them about it, Sometimes they don't want to know about it, because the Christian church doesn't want to know about it. But theoretically, the initial permissibility was given to us. And the Mishnah talks about a woman who is in pregnancy. She's now even in the ninth month. And she now, towards the end of the pregnancy, is experiencing tremendous, tremendous danger in the completion of this pregnancy. And the assessment of the medical world is that if, in fact, the pregnancy reaches fruition and the baby is born, the baby will be born alive, but the mother's going to die as a result of this pregnancy. So God told us in the oral law, in this specific case, as long as the baby is in utero, the mother's life takes priority over the baby, and you're allowed to perform an embryotomy, whichever way you want, to destroy the baby, to take the baby out, piecemeal, to save the mother's life. The mother's life takes what we call priority over the baby inside. Therapeutic abortion, not a debated question, 100% accepted by everybody in the Shulchan Aruch itself. The Shulchan Aruch also says, and the Ramah also says, that once the baby is, undergoes parturition, the baby's already coming out, and it's crowned, and the body's coming out, if in that case you basically have a situation where the mother and the baby's life are in basically in, in contradiction with each other, once the baby came out of the birth canal, even though it's not totally born, and one is going to live and one's going to die, you have to step back and let God make the decision. I can no longer intervene to do a therapeutic abortion. A therapeutic abortion only applies when the baby is still in utero. Once it comes out, I have to stand by and let God make that decision. That's if one's going to live and one's going to die. If both are going to die, I'm still allowed to prioritize going to many posts in the mother's life over the baby because the mother has a more vada, definite existence and the baby doesn't have that yet, we're able to prioritize that way. Now, What's interesting in the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch's presentation, why if the baby's threatening the mother's life, are you allowed to kill the baby? So where Rashi says, because it's not an nefesh yet. It's a non-entity, it's an organ system. If a mother has uh, appendicitis, you cut out the appendix. You cut out the baby. For, for Rashi, it's very simple. For the Rambam, if in fact the baby has a din of an nefesh, because he learned, in fact, like the Mizrahi, 
the baby has a din of a nefesh, a mixas nefesh inside, so why can I kill the baby to save the mother? So he uses a halakhic principle called the concept of rodef, the concept of pursuit. The baby is looked upon in utero pursuing the mother's life, and in Jewish law, in, in, the, in the real world in which we live, if a person is being pursued by somebody who's trying to kill them, you're allowed to kill the pursuer to save the person being pursued. We take that rule and regulation and bring it into the uterus, the baby threatening the mother's life, where basically looking upon the baby as a relative, as a pursuer of the mother's life. We can kill the baby to save the mother's life. The Rambam uses that logic, but there's an importance. If the Rambam needs that logic to justify the babies being terminated, it means he's looking upon this as a question of retzich, of murder. Because if it wasn't murder, I don't need the din of Rodef. The fact that he introduces that into his reason behind it indicates he looked upon the termination of the baby's life as a form of murder, but Rodef therefore gives the baby the pursuit. Halachic definition, we can therefore terminate the baby as the pursue against the mother, and that's what the Raman codifies and what the Shulchan Aruch codifies. So we therefore see over here, thinking about it for a couple of minutes, Rashi doesn't use that logic. It's not a nefesh yet. It's a limb of the mother's body. He doesn't need Rodef. The Raman says it is considered a separate nefesh on some level. To justify its being terminated, you need the learning of Rodef. And therefore, if that's the case, we look upon this as a form of Ritzicha. You can therefore understand that in halachic literature, we have now a major debate among major rabbinic decisors, Rishonic decisors of how we understand the severity of the crime of abortion. Everybody with me so far? Now, what I want to now is show you how this goes a little further in the world of Psak Halacha. When it came to how we adjudicate this case, how we adjudicate the status of the baby inside, so as you go in Jewish history, in the world of Halacha, what you find is when we come already to the 16, 17, 18, 1900s, when you come to these areas of time, there is a split in the world of Bale Halacha whose system we follow. I'll give you an example. The famous Godel Hadar of the 1700s, the Noda Behuda, or Chesko Landau, followed the school of the Rambam. It's a question of murder, and you need Rodef. After him, as you go in historical sequence and time, after you had him Paskin in that way, we then find that besides that, you have Reb Chaim Salavechi going into the early 1900s, the famous Reb Chaim Abrisk, looking upon this as a question of murder, following the Rambam. On a contemporary level, Rav Moshe Feinstein, in his response to literature, one of the great Gedoli Hadar of the modern world, looked upon this as a question of Ritzicha like the Rambam. And all of them, in their response to literature, treated it on such a severe level, quite obviously limiting when and where abortions could be done, if I'm being clear. Since it's a murder question, you have to be careful when and where to apply therapeutic permissibility. On the other side of the coin, you have, as I mentioned before, Marit Raftrani, the Chavisyar, the Bachrach, later on Rav Yaakov Emden, and finally Rav Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer, following the opinion of Rashi and the Maharal. The baby inside is not looked upon as an appendage of the mother's body. It's not looked upon as a question of murder. And therefore, in their response to literature, there are many coolers and leniencies built in based upon looking upon abortion as a question of destroying an organ system rather than causing some type of form of murder. You can understand this therefore causes in the world of Allah two different systems 
When we had a Sanhedrin Haggadah, which we're going to have eventually at some point in time, an issue like this would have been brought in front of the Sanhedrin Haggadah, the Supreme Court in the base of Migdash. They would have had a debate, a discussion, and ultimately a counting of hands, who holds like what, to come to one position. But the problem is we don't have the Sanhedrin yet. And that's why in the world of halacha to this very day, there are two camps of thought of exactly how we should deal with the question of abortion. Should it have the severity of Ritzicha like the Rambam's camp? Should it have the severity of the simple prohibition of Chabala as the Rashi camp? That still flourishes as a debate. And depending upon who you ask the Shayla to, you can come out with two different answers. The most classical example of this in the world of halacha is the question of Tay-Sachs babies. When it comes to say Tay-Sachs babies, and this I want to be very clear over here, because I want you to walk away with a crystal understanding of what's happening today. The question arose, is there any permissibility whatsoever to perform a Tay-Sachs abortion if you know the baby is going to be Tay-Sachs? And we have the ability today to do various tests to know with exactitude the baby has Tay-Sachs. Is there any permissibility? Now, one thing is for sure. The Tay-Sachs baby in utero up into fruition of their birth is not a deformed baby. The baby is going to be born at least physically totally healthy on its physical format. The mother's life during the pregnancy is not endangered whatsoever. So the normal therapeutic permissibility that Chazal talked about of the mother's life being endangered during pregnancy doesn't apply over here. The baby is totally healthy in utero. It's only once the baby's born that the syndrome over a couple years starts to kick in and the baby starts to slowly but surely deteriorate because of certain types of enzymes and other things that the body admits not being processed properly. And slowly but surely, a lot of the chemical waste that the body starts building up and the person starts to ultimately self-destruct. It usually takes a good couple of years for that ultimately to come to fruition. But the baby is born, when you look at it, as a total healthy baby. There's no deformity whatsoever. So what do you do over here? Ramosha Feinstein said very simply, the mother is not therapeutically challenged over here. The baby inside is, is at least at this point, I'm totally healthy. Since I hold the concept of abortion is a prohibition of a form of murder, Ritzicha like the Shittas Harambam, I can't therefore allow a therapeutic abortion. And therefore, you have to let the baby be born, and what happened will happen, but you can't intervene. What Ramosha, however, did say, which is quite interesting, is that if, in order to have a Tay-Sachs baby, both parents have to have the gene, the defective gene. If you don't have the defective gene, you can't create a Tay-Sachs baby. He was therefore the first Jewish advocate for Tay-Sachs screening, historically. And the fact of the matter is, he's the one who brought genetic screening for Jews in general into the Torah world, which we have now various types of organizations that take care of it, because there are most of fine things psak. And he says very simply, if a couple are mismatched when it comes to Tay-Sachs, he says it's not about shared the couple, they shouldn't get married. That was his halakhic opinion. That's his opinion. Rav Waldenberg, however, had a different position. It's Eliezer. He's of the opinion, as I pointed out before, that the baby in utero is not looked upon as a nefesh. It's looked upon as an organ system of the mother's body. And therefore, what he took in consideration is the following. It is true that the baby in utero is not sick yet, which means it doesn't have manifestations of the sickness yet. It's going to be born normally. But statistics show that once such a baby is born to parents, the parents in the next two, three years, 
are going to go through psychological, emotional, physiological damage. Some of them develop heart conditions. Some of them, in fact, develop mental conditions, psychological conditions. Some parents can't even, can't even bear it, might cause people heart attacks. Since there's documentative evidence that it might have a physiological, psychological negative impact upon the parents and a life-threatening one, I have to take that into consideration now. And therefore, because of that, and by the fact it's not murder according to him, you're merely cutting off an organ system, like you're cutting out an appendix, he therefore allows to do a Tay-Sachs abortion up to including the seventh month. That's how far he goes. That's how far he goes. He feels if you wait later, you're now endangering the mother's life because doing a very late stage abortion could cause the mother to have her own endangerment. So he makes the seventh month, the end of it, the cutoff area when it comes to the mother's physical well, health and welfare. And he's known for that. That's his famous Pesach Halacha. But what I want to show you is the reason for his leniency is because it's not considered murder on any level. It's basically destroying an organ system in the mother's body. And since we have the parents' future pekuach nefesh, psychologically, emotionally, in concern, he takes that now as a potential concern based upon statistical impact upon the parents on a dangerous level, puts it all together and comes to his leniency. But I want to point out something interesting to you. And that is, even though he gives this leniency, he was asked the question, should Tay-Sachs couples get married, knowing they have this leniency? And he answered, no. I hold also, it's not bashert. They should be tested before. The leniency is only if it happened, and they didn't do the testing, and they have the baby, I'm giving them a permissibility. But otherwise, I will not tell couples initially who are Tay-Sachs incompatible to get, to get married. That's, where, that's his psaq on the books. In our world today, based upon medical technology, which was not in existence when Rav Waldeberg and Moshe Feinstein had their initial debate, there was, over the years, a development of a new technology called pre-implantation diagnosis. This was developed in West Virginia. At that time, there was a religious non-Jewish couple who unfortunately had produced Tay-Sachs children, all of them died and they wanted to get pregnant, and the laboratory tried something. And that is, they used in vitro fertilization to create prezygotes pre in a laboratory. They took them under a microscope and analyzed which ones of these specific prezygotes have the actual Tay-Sachs factor, and which are totally scot-free. It's only 25% have the factor. And lo and behold, you saw the 25% that were no good. You had the other ones being basically healthy zygots. If re-implanted into the parents, there'd be no Tay-Sachs whatsoever. It's called pre-implantation diagnosis. That started the entire science upon this. And to this very day, couples who are not asking halachic shalos and couples in an un-Jewish world who want to have Tay-Sachs-free babies use the pre-implantation diagnosis because they basically get rid of the Tay-Sachs pre-zygot and use the healthy zygots. The babies that are born are totally scot-free when it comes to Tay-Sachs. That's one way of circumventing the problem. So you don't have to come to any abortion. When you take a prezygot in a laboratory and you destroy it, I'm going to tell you right now, in halacha, it's not considered an abortion. And why is it not considered an abortion? I'm, this is going to be developed later on by Dr. Kadish. When it comes to talking about stem cell research, using embryonic stem cells, I'm going to give him the ability to describe this at length, and you'll see medically what this means. But in the limited exposure I'm going to show you now, when Rav Arbach and all the other girls were asked, if you basically 
do this type of implantation, uh, pre-implantation diagnosis, and you get rid of the other pre-zygotes, is this considered that you're destroying the actual zygotes? Is this a violation of abortion? And they point out, going back to the passage I started off today, my session with, where it says, God revealed to us in the Torah, only when the zygote is contained in the human body and is connected to the uterine wall and normal baby gestation is taking place, is the destruction of this baby considered abortion? Since a prezygote in a laboratory has not come to that stage yet, it's never been connected to the inner uterine wall of human body, and therefore will not become a human being unless it's implanted into that uterine wall. In a laboratory, it can't become a human being at this point in time. It has no future. It has no future existence or development. It stops at a certain point at the blastocyst stage. And therefore, based upon that, they said there's no abortion on prezygotes in a laboratory. Very major binic psak, which means anytime you take prezygotes in a laboratory, whether you can use it for stem cell research or use it for pre-implantation diagnosis, getting rid of all the other prezygotes is not abortion, but this is the kicker. Not only is that the halacha when it comes to Jewish law, that's the halacha when it comes to non-Jewish law as well. As severe as abortion is for them, that you have Mises Besden by doing it, courts down here technically could kill them for having done abortion, that's only when the actual zygote was connected to the uterus and is developing in the actual woman's womb. As long as it never reached that level, it's outside, even according to B'nai Noach law, they've not done anything wrong. Now the reason I'm mentioning this is because the Christian church, that don't have sources, don't have makaras, and made up their own interpretation of biblical law, do not differentiate. And therefore they hold any type of destruction of human seed, whether it's in the body or it's a prezygote in a laboratory, is considered abortion according to their law. And that's why Dr. Kadish will discuss with you at length the concept of embryonic uh, stem cell research, why they're against it because you're destroying prezygotes in a laboratory. But according to halacha, they are totally mistaken. Totally, totally against it. Many years ago, I met with a Christian theologian who I had a debate with, and I discussed this topic with him, and I showed him the biblical text, where it comes from, and he was very impressed because, once again, they don't have makaras, they don't have source material to guide them in how you interpret the psukim. And he said, after our discussion, you convinced me, Rabbi, but you've got to convince the Pope and the rest of the church. And he says, I'm not going to take that upon myself because I know they're not going to listen to me. And the dogma is dogma in the church. It's very difficult to change dogma. But he heard my, what my critique was. So we therefore see that in Jewish literature, the concept of abortion is a very, very big area of understanding and concern. I do want to mention to you a little area over here where there might be a little, little <coughs> bit of a leniency. Listen to me very carefully because this is extremely very important. I said before that as soon as the gestation takes place in the body and it's inside the body, the ease of abortion begins. But that's not totally true. Why am I saying this? Because there are a whole group of rabbinical decisis, postum that hold, that there's the concept of the 40-day rule. There are many Talmudic sources and halakasokas that tell us the first 40 days of gestation, the baby is looked upon as mere fluid of the body, and therefore it has no halakhic significance yet when it comes to its destruction. And only when you come to day 41 of the embryonic development, 
does the prohibition of abortion kick in? And the halachas, for instance, of Tumas Leida, the woman she gives birth, she has to bring certain kabbalah to the base of Megdash. The question of if the mother expels body parts that they contaminate like a tumor of a mess of a dead body, all those halachas don't kick into day 41. If the baby spontaneously or is purposely destroyed up until day, up to including day 40, it's looked upon as a non-halachic watery substance, according to many postkim, and the ease of abortion doesn't begin not only for the Jew, but even for the non-Jew. And when it comes to non-Jews, everybody agrees to this, that for a non-Jew, abortion does not begin in the severity of the Torah law until day 41 of gestation. So now going back to what I said before, saying the killing, the killing of the prezygot in the laboratory is prohibited according to Catholic law, it's a double stringency. Because outside the body, it means nothing according to Torah law, vis-a-vis them. And even in the body in the first 40 days, it means absolutely nothing. The blastocyst is before 40 days. So therefore, even if it was inside the body, it would be halakhli nothing according to ben Lot. It's like a double chumrah they put upon themselves. Now, in Jewish law, however, this becomes a major debate. And that's why this is a very serious debate. The debate is, does everybody agree that the prohibition of abortion doesn't begin before day 41? The answer is no. This is a hot debated question. Uh, the Gedolim who say it does apply for only day 41, there, and there are substantial Gedolim who hold this way, is Rav Chaim Ozegrzinski, one of the great postkim of the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was looked upon as one of the Gedolim Hadar of Europe. He holds this, and there are other postkim who basically hold the same exact. I'm not going to mention names, I'm giving him as the, as the example. Who disagrees? Who says that abortion begins at the time of conception? Which, which religious authority? And I have two that are very, very powerful. One of them, Rav Untemin, who was one of the first chief rabbis of Eretz Israel, and one of the early pioneers in Jewish medical ethics when it comes to developing it, and even equally important, Rav Moshe Feinstein in his response to literature. Rav Moshe felt that as soon as, in fact, conception begins, the prohibition of abortion begins, and what is that predicated upon? What halacha is that derived from? After all, in other areas of halacha, they admit it's a watery substance. When it comes to Tumas Leda, when it comes to Tumas Ames, everybody agrees it's from day 41 on. Why should the destruction of the child when it comes to abortion have a severity concerning it? So Ramosha Feinstein points out that there is a psak on the books generated by one of the Gaonim from the Gaonic era, his name is the Baal Halachas Gedolos, the Bahag. Quoted by Nachmanides, not Maimonides, Nachmanides with an N, Ramban, in which they point out that there is a law in the book that if a mother, for instance, when it comes to Tishabov or Anyom Kippur, is suffering uh, with, with some type of sickness, so if she's suffering from her own sickness and it might endanger herself and the baby, she's allowed to break the fast. But that's not the Chiddush. The Chiddush is the next part. If the mother's totally healthy, but the baby is suffering with potential endangerment, and if you fast, you're going to aggravate it, and might cause a spontaneous miscarriage as a result, so the baby's life is at stake, even though the mother's life is not at stake whatsoever, you're allowed to basically be mechala yom kippur, and all the, the importance of the laws of that day to save the baby's life, force the mother to eat, to keep the baby alive and healthy, and the halach, he says, begins, not on day 41 of conception, it begins from the day of conception. 
So if you knew when the conception took place in the first 40 days, and it's on Yom Kippur, and there's a fear based upon what's happening physiologically, that the pregnancy might be lost even before day 40 was reached, you allowed the Mechal Yom Kippur for the baby's Pekach Nefesh, even though the mother's life is not at stake. So he argues the following. If that's the way you pass it, there's to be saving the baby's life, surely you can't terminate the life at the, at the same time. I mean, it's contradictory to say, I can terminate, but I have a chiv mechal Shabbos to save it. What is it predicated upon? Why in the world should there be a chiv to save the baby in the first 40 days if most halach is not considered a halachic child yet when it comes to embryonic development? So the reason is based upon a pusik in the Torah, in Sefer Shemos, the book of Exodus, where the Torah says the following. The lotion of the Torah is, and I want to read the Pasuk for you, and I'll translate immediately into English. The Pasuk says, We say this on Friday night in Shul, you know, uh, as part of our Tfilos. It mentions Shabbos twice. Chazal had a Medrash Halach upon this, quote in the Gemara in Yoma, Violate Shabbos now and save the person, save the child, so it will be viable to grow up to an adult and observe Shabbos in the future. There is a futuristic mechanism built into halacha in dealing with the child in a very early stage, in the pre-embryonic stage, that the baby on a biological level hasn't even developed a functioning circulatory system or a heart, which by day 40, you, 41 you can see already, about, about that time. But before that, you don't have really any body systems you can even visualize, even using the most fancy microscopes you have to visualize. The fact that there's a futuristic ability to save the child's life now for future observance in Torah mitzvahs, they have a Pasuk from the Torah and a Medrash Chazal giving basically a validity to that. And they claim that starts from the moment of conception. If that's the case, they therefore have a prohibition for Jews to terminate any conception from the very beginning, even the first 40 days. But obviously the other Gedolim who disagree claim that the Pasuk I just quoted might apply from day 41 on. It doesn't apply from day one, but this is the debate that takes place in these two schools of thought. It seems that many of the Gedolim today, since you're dealing with a question according to the Rambam's camp of a question of murder, and those who follow that specific very, very strict opinion, you could understand you don't want to play around with a question of potential maybe murder or not in a 40-day period where many Gadol and Ramosh himself who held this murder held that the Issa murder begins from day one of the conception itself. Those who follow Ramosh and obviously are very fixed in place. They will not allow abortion therefore from day one on if it's non-therapeutic. Those who don't follow Ramosh's opinion and are more of Waldenbrecher when it comes to their approach will be lenient in two ways. Number one is they will not treat it as a murder even if it's after 41 and won't even consider the viability of the child in the first 40 days because as far as they're concerned, it's an organ system of the mother's body, it's not murder anyway, and since all the other concepts of embryonic development only become halakhly significant in day 41, the same thing should apply when it comes to the prohibition of abortion. So what I've presented to you, if you think about it for a couple of minutes, is there are two distinct halakhic systems of thought of how we treat abortion. I think by now you understand. It goes all the way back to biblical phraseologies, and how those phraseologies are interpreted by the poskim. The ramifications are what is the level of prohibition you have when it comes to abortion? Is it ritzicha? Is it murder? Or is it a question of destroying an organ system of the mother's body? And the debate 
of whether or not this applies from day up including day 40 or only begins on day 41, the debate I just discussed now, you have in front of you the basic parameters of the concept of abortion. But one thing is for sure in Judaism, we have the permissibility of therapeutic abortion. And there, Chazal have a tremendous dispute. Is it only physiological pukuach nefesh? If there's a physical problem with the mother, or maybe even psychological pukuach nefesh can be filtered in. This is a debatable question, but at least there's a debate. There's a discussion. What happens in rape cases? What happens in incest cases? Whose sheet do we rely upon? Can we rely upon any leniencies over here? That's how an entire literature has developed when it comes to this specific topic. In the Christian world, because unfortunately they don't want to accept what is in fact God's interpretation of the law for them, in the canons of the Christian church, when you have a mother whose life is being endangered, they articulate better two deaths than one murder. So, they, so you have uh, billions of people out there who are Christians who don't have the leniencies we have according to Torah law, which even technically they have, but they don't want to recognize.